0: Well, why don't you be seated and I want to introduce to you our preacher for the day. I've been excited about this day for some time. Her name is Jessica Lagrone. Jessica is a friend of mine for 25 years and <clears throat> she currently serves where she's been for the better part of a decade, the dean of the chapel at Asbury Seminary. And before that, for the better part of a decade, she was on the staff as a pastor at the big church in the Woodlands that you've heard me tell many stories of, which I once served at years before uh, she did. Uh, She's well-published, writes Bible studies and so that are used in churches all around the country, and she speaks all around. I asked the Lord last night, now, how the best way to uh, introduce Jessica And I felt like he said with two words, she's like Jesus, full of grace and full of truth. I think you'll perceive that as you listen to her. She just has such a pleasant balance, full of biblical uh, truth and grace, and it just comes out of her. She's married to Jim, has two kiddos there, all in Kentucky. She just came in to uh, preach to us this weekend. And I should add one more thing since our restructuring about a year ago, she, along with Gary Thomas and Steve Carter, are our three pastoral elders so she's actually a part and has been a part of faith Ridge you just haven't seen her that's why i've been looking forward to having jessica legrone here today why don't you help me to welcome her up here
1: All right. Well, thank you for that warm welcome. I am so thrilled to be here. I'm so excited to worship with you today, excited to uh, welcome those of you who are in the communion service and wo- worshiping online as well. Um, as Ken mentioned, I've known of Faith Bridge, visited with you before years ago, been praying for you over these last few years. And so it is. it's an answered prayer to be here with you in person. This is a wonderful church. I'm so thrilled uh, for all that you've been doing, all the growth, all the ministry, all the wonderful opportunities here. So just the connection to this church has meant so much to me. So I'm grateful to be here today. Thank you for inviting me to come and preach in October and not in June or July. Uh, Two reasons. The first one's obvious, the weather. Whoever turned down the thermostat, we appreciate it. We're grateful. We're ready for fall and winter. I can't even imagine the summer that you guys have been through here. But the other is the Astros. So anytime, that's right, we've got t-shirts going on in the room. Anytime that I get to be in my hometown and uh, watch my home team beat my husband's team, which is gonna happen tonight, Um, (laughs) is a good day. And so I'll be standing with you on that one. Uh, My only consolation uh, in a house divided, which we live in, is that the kids were born in Houston. And so they know where their loyalties lie. They're at home in Kentucky giving their dad a hard time this morning. So um, it it is just always wonderful to come home. And thank you for welcoming me um, as one of your own. I'm just Grateful to be here. Well, I wanna share with you this morning uh, about a friend of mine from childhood. We grew up going to school together and uh, went to high school together. And we don't live in the same area anymore, so we keep up in the way that you keep up with some of your old friends through Facebook. You know, she posts pictures of her family and I make comments and then I do the same. And she does, we send each other little messages of encouragement sometimes. And she is uh, a hardworking single mom of two teenagers and uh, really is overworked with a mostly supportive, unsupportive ex-husband and is kind of doing it all on her own. And I'm so proud of her. Uh, she has so many challenges that make her life much more challenging than mine. Now, when she has what I can tell is going to be a particularly hard day or a hard season, uh, when the child support hasn't come in and she's working two jobs and both of her bosses want her to work overtime and uh, the kids need something that she can't give them, she gets up in the morning and she posts on Facebook the phrase, you've got this. She says she looks in the mirror, looks at herself, and says to herself, you've got this. And then usually she takes one of those great you know, mirror selfies, and that's her caption. You've got this. It's like a signature hashtag for her. And that's pretty good, as a mantra goes. If you're going to have self-talk, at least talk to yourself in a positive way. It's helpful to tell yourself, you can do it. You've got this. Except on a lot of days when she posts that, I can tell that she doesn't. You know, it's too much. It's too much for one person. It's overwhelming. And so you've got this really doesn't carry her through the day. Sometimes the mornings where she posts you've got this, you know, by the end of the day, she's run out of that self-confidence, self-reliance. It's not what she's running on anymore. She's running on fumes, and she could really use some help. So she has to figure out how to make it in these situations. She's pulled herself up by her own bootstraps again and again, uh, reconfigured her life as really doing amazing things. But one thing I've learned in just interacting with her, praying for her, being her friend through all of this is we all run out Sometimes. Whether we'd like to tell ourselves that we have it or not, we have to figure out what to do when we come to the end of ourselves. Because friends, it happens, right? No matter how confident you are at the beginning of the day, there are challenges in life that just are a little too much for our hashtags sometimes. So what do you do when you don't got this? when you don't have everything you need, I think that's when we need to come to a place that we have a better understanding, dare I say it, a good theology of the gift of desperation. The gift of desperation. It's kind of a gift nobody wants. But we need to understand better how God can give us desperation as a gift. And the gift of desperation is this. It's that when we run out is where we are most likely to run to Jesus. And that's where the help is, that's good news. There's a great story in scripture that I I can't think of any better example of running out, right, this is the story. Um, And if you would like a paper Bible, there's ushers, they have them, they can bring them to you if you wanna follow along on paper. We're gonna follow along on the screens or if you wanna follow along in your Bible, we're in the Gospel of John. Uh, very early in the book, so the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we're in chapter two, very close to the beginning, really just the start of Jesus's ministry. And John tells us that this uh, story of running out, this is the story of the first miracle that Jesus performs. Only John never uses the word miracle. Isn't that interesting? The other gospels do, but John Calls them signs. This is the first of the signs that Jesus did. John tells about seven signs in Jesus' life. He loves the number seven, by the way. And I love the word sign because, you know, a sign is not about itself. A sign is meant to point to something else. So when we read about Jesus' signs, we have to ask ourselves what is this sign pointing to? So let's read about the first of Jesus' miracles, or John says signs. And ask ourselves, what is God pointing us to in this story? From John chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding, get this, from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that, look out, had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you, you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is God's word and it is true. And so here we are at a wedding. Anybody love a wedding? Weddings are fun, right? Jesus is here at a wedding in a town called Cana. He's come with his mother. He's brought his 12 closest friends with him. They show up at a wedding. Now, this isn't a short wedding with a little party after it. This, friends, is a multiple-day party. They knew how to wedding back then. Multiple-day party longer than a week possibly as long as two weeks, where people came from all over to join with this family in their joy of the joining of two families. And it was the groom's family, a little different from our uh, culture, the groom's family put on the party. So the groom's family has promised to provide food and drink to travelers who have come in to stay with them from all over. And that means... It is disastrous when the wine runs out before the party is over. And no one else here acknowledges the problem. Everybody's just kind of pretending it's all okay, right? Whistling, making like no problems going on, except Mary. I love it. Mary is the first one to acknowledge it. Jesus, she says, they have no more wine. Now, don't you love it how a mother can make a simply innocuous statement, but it's not really just a statement. Do you love it? Your dirty socks are in the middle of the dining room table. This is not just a statement, it implies a response. So Jesus, they have no more wine, is an invitation to respond. And Jesus responds, how does Jesus respond? Woman, woman, he says, what concern is this of mine or of yours? My hour has not yet come. And if we look at this through our own cultural lens, through the way that we understand language and dialogue, it seems like maybe really the first miracle here is that Mary didn't just take him out right then and there. (laughs) Woman, are you kidding me? All right, do you talk to your mother that way? I don't think so. I had a friend uh, back in seminary who decided that if Jesus could address females starting with the word woman, then he would also try it out. And so he would come up to us uh, after class and say things like, woman, can I borrow your ethics notes? I left mine at home. And he thought, you know, it was good enough for Jesus, it was good enough for him. And uh, so we let him know that crucifixion was also good enough for Jesus. (laughs) And that he might just be watching his back. He stopped, he stopped. In any case, Mary doesn't really engage that. She seems not to respond to that word. Instead, she simply tells the servants Do whatever he tells you to do. So, I mean, full stop there. We could just have a sermon on that phrase, couldn't we? That is some great instruction about the voice of Jesus. Just do whatever it is he tells you to do. That's how we get to participate in the miracles in life. So Jesus turns to the servants and he asks them to bring the water jugs in used for ritual purification, right? We learned that these hold 20 to 30 gallons of water and that there's six of them somewhere. These were not used for drinking water. They are for purification ceremonies. This is a good Jewish household, a good Jewish wedding. And so at times when they wanted to be made ritually pure for worship, they used these gigantic water jugs for purification baths. And so Jesus says, go find the jars and fill them With water, and the servants did. They filled them up to the brim. And friends, that's a lot of extra work. I mean, that's like 150 gallons or more of extra work for these servants who are already overworked taking care of all of these guests at a wedding, not to mention Jesus and his 12 friends, who, dare we say it, may be the reason that the wine ran out in the first place. (laughs) That's not really described to us. But that's when something remarkable happens. When they do. Whatever Jesus tells them to do, they fill the jars up. This is obedience, not halfway, not three quarters, all the way to the top. And when they take a little of it out and take it to the head steward of the wedding, the person helping the groom's family run this wedding, it's not water anymore. It's wine. And nobody knows that this has happened except the servants Those who assist in the miracle actually saw it with their eyes. And when the head steward tastes it, it is far better than any wine he's ever tasted. And he calls to the groom. Remember, the groom and his family are responsible for providing food and wine to all of these people. And the groom is clueless about the menu malfunction. The the head steward says to him, what is going on? This is the best of the wine. Most people would serve it first, but you have saved it until now. And we're told this is the first of the signs that Jesus did and that his disciples believed in him. Uh, When my husband Jim and I got married 18 years ago uh, in March here in Houston, Texas, it was a beautiful day like this. It was like mid-70s, no humidity. It's just a sign that God loved us. Um. He and I were some of the last of our friends to get married. We had waited to get married until much later than most of our friends, and so we had both been in a lot of weddings. Jim had been an usher and a groomsman in all of his friends' weddings. I had been a bridesmaid, and then I had been the pastor that officiated at many weddings. And both of us had been just, you know, making notes on our wedding bucket list all of this time. Like, ooh, I'd like that, oh, I want to do that at our, ooh, I'd like that at my wedding. And so when it came time for our own wedding, we just did all of them, okay? We opened with hymns, we sang praise choruses, uh, we had multiple scripture readings, there was a full-length sermon, none of these little homily things for us. We invited 500 of our closest friends and they came, and then we served them all communion. It was glorious, and it was an hour and a half long. My dad said that was the longest wedding he ever sat through. But here's the thing. Even if at our wedding of 500 people, if we had run out of wine, food, water, it it would have been embarrassing, but maybe not as disastrous as it was at this wedding. You know, uh, we, when we got married, I was a pastor, and Jim was a professor at the time, and uh, we had to figure out how to feed 500 of our closest friends at a wedding, and let me just tell you, at the wedding of a preacher and teacher, you ain't getting a buffet of surf and turf. That's not what's happening. So we came up with this really ingenious solution. We got married at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and you know what it means when you get an invitation to a wedding that's at 10 in the morning or 2 in the afternoon. It means you're just getting cake that's what's happening. Um, but we did not run out. We actually had some wonderful hot hors d'oeuvres, my mother would want me to tell you. And, um, you know, we, ha- we had a nice spread, even though it wasn't a meal. But even if we had wa- run out, it would have been embarrassing. We would have sent somebody around the corner to Whataburger to, like, supply the rest of the banquet. But it would not have been reputation-ending It would not have been the biggest social faux pas that would have put our family as outcasts among all the other families in the village. For this family, this was a complete disaster. They had entered into a social contract by inviting these people to join them there. And for this new couple, and not only that, their extended families, this could be the moment that would put them on the outs with their entire area who they needed to survive. In fact, the people who came to the wedding could have sued the groom's family for breach of contract in court. Isn't that interesting? Because they were responsible for their livelihood and were not following through by keeping them in food and drink. So their situation was not just embarrassing, it was desperate. And I love that for so many reasons, that right here at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, right here, right off the bat, Jesus is responding to a group of desperate people. Someone runs out. They are unable to help themselves. They don't got this. And someone asks Jesus for help. Well, it's Mary. And Jesus responds, And the gift they receive in return is overflowing and abundant. This first miracle, this sign, is actually a template for all the other miracles. It's a way of saying, what are miracles about? What are they signs pointing towards? Well, every miracle begins with a desperate person. If you go through the Gospels, open up your Bibles tonight, look up, see if you can find the miracles, mark a little M next to them. It's okay to write in your Bible, I promise. Mark a little M next to the miracles. Now, right before that, look, there are desperate people. Someone is blind or lame or dead. Someone's child is sick or dying or demon-possessed. Thousands of people need something to eat and there's no food. Ten people are running around with leprosy outcasts from their families outside the community. A woman is bent over. A man's hand is withered beyond recognition. A woman has been bleeding for 12 years. A child is dead. These are desperate people. And they come to Jesus. And that's when the signs and the miracles happen. Desperation is actually a gift it doesn't feel like it is the gift nobody ordered but desperation is the gift that drives us to Jesus that forces us to ask to plead to pray because if you're not desperate what would you need a miracle for anyway these friends are desperate people and every one of us have desperation in our lives Every one of us have a point of running out because that's how God made us. He made us to be human and finite so that we could not do it all and we would need to come to him. And those who are desperate are the ones who know that and they receive. Boy, do they receive. I mean, why why do the humble get lifted up? The poor in spirit get blessed. Why do the meek inherit the earth? The meek, for goodness sakes. Those are the Beatitudes. They're God's responses to desperate people. There's people who have already run out and they can't pretend anymore, and so they turn to God for help. Desperation is a gift of not being able to pretend anymore. Uh, We're actually taught that it's our strengths that are what God wants, right? Bring your gifts to Jesus. Show God what gifts you have and he will use them, but If you come to God with just gifts, what did you need him for anyway? It's our weaknesses that get us there. We have to ask ourselves, what does life look like when we run out of our own strength? And maybe running out, it feels like failure, but it's not. It's just the point at which we meet God, the primary place where we see Jesus's power. And so I guess the question for us this morning is you, well, if you haven't hit rock bottom yet, How do we get you there faster? Aren't you glad you came to church? Is that the question you were looking to answer today? There's good news about that too. And the news is there's two ways to get to the foot of the cross, which is where we cry out to Jesus, two ways. You can fall there or you can (laughs) kneel there. You don't have to have a desperate life to have a desperate heart. You don't have to be living in the midst of chaos to bring yourself and surrender to the cross. That's why the Bible talks so much about things like humility and confession and repentance. These are the ways that we bring ourselves low, looking up to Jesus, who is the source of our help and our strength. Rock bottom is the place where we meet Jesus. So desperation is actually just a gift of honesty. They all stood around pretending at this wedding like there was no problem. Sometimes it just takes one person to say, this is not okay. We need God. And that's what Mary did. She was the one who even opened up the question that they needed Jesus' help. We have to learn to do the same thing and stop pretending, we have to lean into our desperation, figure out that we're running out and run to Jesus before we just collapse there, to tell Jesus honestly that we need His help. Now one thing when I was studying this sign, this miracle, that kind of well, it bothered me a little bit about it, a question that I had that I couldn't find an answer for, and it was this: Why is this one first? Why first, Jesus? It's a private party, a private audience. Even the crowd never knows what happens. The only real witnesses to this miracle are the disciples, the servants, and the women. And friends, servants and women couldn't even testify in court. Their word was not something that counted in this culture. So if you want to make a splash with your first miracle, why do it here? Why in private? I mean, start with a resurrection. That gets people's attention. Begin by casting out demons or feeding thousands of people. Boy, people will really notice your ministry then. Why does Jesus start at a private party offering wine to the guests? And I was, I was looking that up. I read several scholars, several commentators on that until I came across one. And I have to confess it made me mad. Uh, reading this guy's words really upset me, but it, it forced me to look deeper into it. But I'm gonna share with you what uh, he said so I can share with you where I went after that as I was searching. Uh, this scholar's response to the question, why first? Why does Jesus uh, perform the turning of water into wine as the very first sign of his ministry? Here's what he said, I'm gonna quote here. Some people seem to think that a good Christian must not be too lighthearted, that a good Christian must be very serious. How very different the real Jesus is. He comes to a wedding. He decides to perform his first miracle to help people enjoy themselves and have fun. This story tells me that Jesus' primary concern is to help individuals and make them happy. Now, I don't know which word made me more mad. Individuals or happy. Now, God, God loves individuals. Don't get me wrong. And God loves it when we're happy, when we're joyful, but I've never seen in scripture God's vision for us stop there. His vision is so much bigger than individual happiness, right, he's here to restore the whole universe and so I wondered where does this guy get this, help individuals and make them happy, that's what Jesus' ministry is gonna be about? This is the frat party, Jesus. I mean, this is a genie in the bottle kind of Jesus. When you have a little individual happiness need, please, Jesus, just come out and answer my prayer. We all do it. We all do it. We ask for what we need, but God is about giving us so much bigger than just our little wants. He's about restoring the whole state of the universe. If you look at this little version of Jesus's uh, purpose here on earth, then I'm sorry, but Job in the Old Testament, he couldn't worship that Jesus. Nor could Naomi, who lost both of her sons and her husband, Stephen, the first martyr who's stoned to death worshiping Jesus, he couldn't worship at the individual happiness altar. Jesus himself hanging on the cross, where is that purpose in individual happiness? So I had to go back and look a little deeper. Why? Why is this the first miracle? And it all starts with a conversation at a wedding, doesn't it? Between a mother, and a son. And it opens with these words, Mary saying to Jesus, Jesus, they have run out of wine. Now, if you go back uh, to the Old Testament prophets, especially the prophet Isaiah, any time that someone's talking about wine, they're talking about something more than a fun party to go to. They're talking about a sign that God is coming to restore the world. They're talking about the hope for Messiah. So anytime that people are longing for Messiah, thirsty for Messiah, dry and just worn out, longing for God to come, they talk about a thirst for wine. And anytime that the wine flows in Isaiah's uh, prophecies, it's about God coming and flowing with the blessing of the Messiah. Let me give you just two examples. The first is in Isaiah 24, 7. Listen to these words. See if they remind you of the wedding. The new wine dries up, and the vine withers, and all the merrymakers groan. Okay, so there's a longing there, but it's deeper than just a human thirst. And then the very next chapter, Isaiah 25, it talks about how the Messiah will come. What will that be like? What are the pictures Isaiah gives us for that? Listen to this, Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Sound familiar? On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth the Lord has spoken. Does that sound like better than another glass? It's the destruction of death, the wiping away of tears. This is God's purpose on earth. And so Mary says, referencing Isaiah and the prophets, Jesus, they've run out of wine. Not just this wedding is run out of wine, Jesus, but the world is thirsty for Messiah. Isn't it time? The world has run dry. The world longs to see death defeated and tears dried. This nice Jewish wedding is out of wine, Jesus, but here is a sign that it's time for the Messiah to show up and start his work. And Jesus responds to her, what? Woman? Woman? Did you really think Jesus was gonna sass his mother at a wedding? I mean, come on, that's one of the commandments, honor your father and mother. Jesus doesn't use tone, which with my kids, I would say, don't you use that tone with me. Have you ever said that? I have, I have a teen and a preteen, pray for me. Um, so there's no tone here, okay? Listen to this, when Jesus uses the word woman, he does it with honor and compassion. The word woman is a blessing in the mouth of Jesus. In the garden after he's resurrected, he says to a woman there, woman, why are you weeping? And the only other place in this gospel where he addresses his mother this way is from the cross. Hanging on the cross, Jesus says to his mother, woman, behold your son. And son, this is now your mother. He, he's giving Mary a son in his friend John when he's about to die on the cross. So the word woman is a compassionate blessing on the lips of Jesus. May it be so on our lips as well. Jesus is blessing her with his response. And my hour has not yet come. Is that like saying, get off my back, mom? Um, Where does Jesus finally say that his hour has come in the gospel of John? It's in John 17 from the... From the Garden of Gethsemane, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. So the place where his hour is going to come is at the cross. It's this beautiful, beautiful bridge that John is building for us here. It's a a bridge between the prophecies that the Messiah is going to come all the way to a wedding And that wedding is having a bridge built all the way to the cross, the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. And we're already talking about the cross. How does this passage open? On the third day, Jesus was at a wedding. What else happens on the third day? On the third day, he was raised from the dead. Right here at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is preparing us for what it will all be about. It's all a journey to the cross. On the third day, they're at a wedding, and Jesus steps into the role of groom. Remember, it's the groom who provides the food and the wine. So Jesus is acting like a groom. And if Jesus is groom in this role, uh, who's missing? Who do we not see in this whole story? Come on. Where's the bride? The bride. You can't tell a wedding story without a bride. Has, has John never seen Say Yes to the Dress? I mean, this is a pretty important person at a wedding, so who is the bride at this wedding? Who is the bride in Jesus' stories? John is building for us this bridge from a wedding to the cross to another wedding where the bride of Christ, friends, it's us. It's the church, we're told again and again, the church is the bride of Christ. And here in this story, the church, the church ends up coming to her bridegroom, tattered and muddy and broken, the bride who's run out of her gifts and strength, the bride who's used up her best, where all we have to offer our groom is desperation. That's what drives us to him, where we approach Jesus as the bride, ragged and dirty, and fall at his feet and admit we are not enough. We, we tried Jesus, but we have run out. And in grace upon grace, as John will say, Jesus says, bring the water jars for purification. I'll take care of her. We're going to need a lot of water for this one, but I have more than enough. Jesus is the one ready to do the washing, the purification. We tried our best and ran out, and guess what? Jesus had more than enough. Desperation is a gift. Anybody meet desperation in their last week, their last year, this last season? Anybody find a desperate moment? Anybody have something coming up? you just know you're not enough to handle on your own? This is good news, friends. This is what will drive you to the feet of Jesus. This is what will take you to the place where you know you're not enough, but you know that God is more than enough. Listen, they asked for a refill, and they got a Messiah? All of us, all of us come to Jesus with our individual needs for human happiness, our wants, our prayers, But Jesus always has more than what we've asked for. More than all that we could demand of him. He wipes away the tears from every eye. He destroys death and shame and pain. This is the gift of desperation. This is where we will meet him. Uh, When I do premarital counseling with couples, when I'm going to do their weddings, I tell them, just to let you know, something goes wrong at every wedding. I'm not, not trying to ruin their wedding for them. It's just that I meet a lot of couples planning the perfect wedding when no wedding is perfect, right? So I just let them know, when the thing goes wrong at your wedding, just say, well, there it is, and move on. And that might be the story that you tell from now on, right? Uh, sometimes someone faints, or someone steps on the bride's veil as she's going up the stairs and her head goes backwards or a bridesmaid goes into labor, or the ring bearer yells out that he has to go pee-pee, or he just does. (laughs) These, by the way, are all true stories of weddings that I have officiated as a pastor. There is something at every wedding. So at our wedding, 18 years ago, beautiful day, Houston, Texas, at our wedding, the unity candle would not light. In terms of symbols, that's one you kind of want to work. Um, And it was my fault, really. Uh, I'm a pastor, and I thought it would be so beautiful to use the Christ candle from our church, the one that had been at the middle of the Advent wreath that we had lit on Christmas Eve for years and years and years. Something about the symbolism of, like, the unity of Christ and our wedding. And I don't know. It's complicated when the bride is a pastor. It's just hard. So um, this candle had been burned for Christmas Eve for like decades. And so the candles this tall, but the wick is actually all the way down inside it somewhere. So we come in with our little individual candles looking for unity and we're just, you know, dripping wax down on top of this wick, burying it. There's no way we're lighting this thing. And the beautiful song that was playing finished and 500 people just sat there in silence, staring at us. I looked over, Jim was white as a sheet. He does not enjoy being in front of people, unlike me. And um, I mean, just we didn't know what we were going to do. And so the pastor, who's one of my closest friends, my mentor, he came over. He took that candle down. He turned it sideways. He dried out the little wick, and he held it like this for us so that our candles could go in, light the wick, put it back up. And then he approached the congregation, and he said, It is lit. It is lit. And just like that, just like that, everybody laughed, and I laughed, and I looked over and Jim laughed, and he looked more like himself than he had the whole wedding. And that's it. That's the moment. That's the moment I remember. That's what I think about when I think about our wedding, is the moment (laughs) that it almost was a disaster, but it wasn't the moment we couldn't do it on our own, the moment we needed help, the moment everybody was staring and help came and it actually was the most beautiful moment of all. Because how is our unity on our own? We need everybody's help, don't we? It's the moment I remember because it's the moment that I knew that it wasn't about being perfect. Not even that day was about being perfect. It was about acknowledging our desperation And when we admitted it, help came and joy followed. Friends, you're going to run out. You already have. It's actually why you're here. You know you need something more than you have on your own, separate from other Christians, separate from worship, separate from the Holy Spirit. You know you need what God has to offer. So when you meet desperation, don't just ask for a refill. God is here with grace upon grace upon grace. You're gonna say, Jesus, help. And he's gonna say, bring the jars. (laughs) I have more than enough. Will you pray with me? Jesus, um, desperation does not feel like a welcome gift to us. None of us wants it. None of us asks for it, but we all have it. So God, I pray for those who are here this morning, those who are online who are all facing a point of desperation. And Lord, we pray for the gift of humility to stop pretending and to stop thinking we can do it in our strength. And we ask, Lord, just we ask that you would help us to kneel at the foot of your cross. Lord, we come to you with just individual wants, but you have so much more. So Lord, fill us up. Fill us up to overflowing. And, Lord, when we meet desperation, help us to meet you there. Lord, when we run out, help us to run to you. God, we're so grateful that you didn't leave us alone. We're so grateful you made us limited so that we could meet you, the one without limit. We praise you for who you are, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen.